Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and thank you for joining me today. If you just climbed into your car, we're going to talk about a crisis of faith today. And it isn't always what it seems. You know, if you want to alleviate a crisis, you better get to its source and not just treat the symptoms. That was said by John Marriott, um, who's my guest this hour. Many say they're leaving the faith as a result of conscious intellectual doubts or relational hurts. We're going to go through his book, called Before You Go, Uncovering Hidden Factors in Faith Loss. Dr. John Marriott is coordinator for the Biola University Center for Christian Thought and teaches in the Philosophy and Intercultural Studies Department. In other words, he's a smart guy. He's written a number of books, and I'm always glad to have him on. John, welcome. Hi, Bill. It's good to be with you today. Thanks I, for having me. I appreciate that. How are things in sunny California? The same? You know, No, you know what? It's not sunny today. It's raining and it's cold. It's only in about the 60s today, and it's raining, so everybody's kind of panicked out here. I bet. And you will get uh, next to zero sympathy from me. Oh, I I don't expect any. I'm from northern Ontario in Canada. <laughs> I've lived almost my whole life there. So okay. Then you will get sympathy. I, uh, I am, uh, I, you know, n- the northern people are my people, so... Oh, good, I, good. I, I, lo- I love knowing that that's our bond, one of the many bonds we have. Um, so, n- nice job on this book. This is getting to be a more and more of a pr- of a problem and an issue for many. And so, let's talk about before you go uncovering hidden factors in faith loss. So, what is the message of this book? The message of the book is that we believe things and we lose belief in things for many different reasons. And um, unfortunately. Um, people who leave the faith often will cite, as you said earlier, that they've lost their faith because of reason. Hmm. And while I don't doubt that reason plays a significant role, and maybe we need to define what reason is, but um, there's a number of other factors that are going on, I think, underneath the surface, and uh, that also play a significant role in faith loss, and that need to be brought to the surface because unless you identify what is causing or is a catalyst for someone walking away from their faith, then you might not be addressing the real problem. And so my co-author and I, Sean Wicks, who's a pastor out here in Southern California, we, you know, after spending a lot of time talking with people who have left the faith from an academic and from a pastoral perspective, said, there's a handful of things going on here that nobody seems to be addressing, and so we wanted to bring those to the surface. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk about those, because this, this is a very important topic. I get texts and emails all the time from listeners who are uh, lamenting the fact that a loved one, um, kid, spouse, has just said, mm, I'm done. I'm not interested anymore. And it breaks mm-hmm. their heart into a thousand pieces. They don't know what to do. And, and I think there's some people that take what the Bible says, and then they take that and interpret the culture with what the Bible says, and there's a lot of people nowadays that are taking what the culture says and deciding that they're going to use that to interpret the Bible. It's not an original thought, but there it is. Yep, I think that, yeah, I think that that really is the case, and the more that um, Christianity is out of step with what are cultural norms and modern moral sensibilities, I think the harder it's going to be 
for folks to continue to main, maintain faith, especially young people. And that's one of the things that we raise in the book is that sometimes uh, an argument that says, I don't believe in Christianity anymore, or I don't believe in the existence of God. And and maybe when you ask why, it's because of you know reason. I say because reason shows me that it's not true might actually be motivated prior to that by kind of a rejection maybe of, of morals or values that uh, the Christian worldview would hold, the Bible would teach. And so therefore, uh, because someone might feel very uncomfortable maybe advocating for those views or they feel really uh, uncomfortable, maybe bigoted, intolerant because they hold those views, then um, reason comes along afterwards and, and justifies unbelief and non-belief when it really was uh, really a moral and value-driven problem and reason just um, in a way um, sort of legitimizes it or rationalizes it. Mm -hmm. Dr. John Marriott is my guest. His book is Before You Go, Uncovering Hidden Factors in Faith Loss. Uh, John, I love it when, as a host, I love it when my guest feeds me good questions. So let's go back to something you said, maybe we should define reason. So let's let's define reason. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, you know, uh, contrary to maybe what a lot of people just might assume is that um, there's no standard definition of what it is, you know, what reason actually is. Um, sometimes I think that we, um, uh, we we take something that's abstract, like we might say the winds of change, and we talk about it as though it's a thing. And there's no such thing as the winds of change. They're just events that take place, and we call it the winds of change. Well, it, something similar, I think, happens with reason. You know, reason is not a thing. Reason is not um, uh, an existent object. Reason is a pro- is is a is a process that we go through. We we reason, and uh, that includes evaluating, uh, weighing, um, making recognizing patterns, making inferences, drawing conclusions. But we do all of that based on evidence or information or data that's presented to us. So sometimes. When people say, well, I've left the faith and I, be, because of reason, I want to say, well, what do you mean by reason? And usually, after you listen long enough, what reason is comes down to a set of beliefs, assumptions, presuppositions, uh, uh, intuitions that for them become an ultimate criterion, and all other claims are weighed against that. So it becomes this ultimate standard. And uh, if it doesn't match up with their unique understanding of reason, then they say, hey, this this isn't true anymore. But it's not as though they have reasoned their way to that conclusion. They have a, a, a standard, a criterion that they're using, which of course we all do. And it becomes the ultimate criterion for them. But another way of saying that is the ultimate criterion of reason is just really them. It's, it's really themselves. And from a Christian perspective, we would say that the ultimate standard or criterion that we should use as we reason would be the Bible, because we're always reasoning according to a standard. Something makes sense or doesn't make sense in relation to how it matches up with our ultimate criterion. And I tend to think that. Um, that uh, often when, when folks say, well, this isn't reasonable, it doesn't make sense to me, well, that's just because it doesn't line up with your collected nebulous set of beliefs and, and, and ideas, but why are they the ultimate criterion for truth? Hmm. This is so interesting, John. I forgot how interesting you are. 
Oh, well, I mean, you should remind my wife of that once in a while. I will. Get her on. Get her on. I'll talk to her right now. <laughs> All right. Let's, um, let's talk about uh, conscious awareness. Now, we're going to dip into the philosophical waters a little bit more than I'm comfortable, but let's uh, talk about the, how our, the factors that influence our thinking without us being aware of them and what's the difference between conscious awareness and unconscious awareness? Sure. Well, conscious awareness would be when we um, sort of go about a process, maybe uh, sometimes people might call it strategic reasoning. We, we ask ourselves, all right, here's what I, I, my options, option A, option B, here are the pros, here are the cons, here are the things that maybe I, I, I need to take into consideration. What are some of the principles? What are some of the um, outcomes that might come along if I make decision A or decision B? And that would be, that would be strategic reasoning. That would be reasoning um, based on data that would come our way. And um, then based on you know, what we think is good, we would uh, make a choice. When I, in the book, talk about some of these unconscious factors, uh, I'm saying that there are things that are kind of going on below the surface that influence us that we're just not really aware of, and they influence our conscious thinking. So, for example, emotions, the values that we have, um, uh, the culture that we live in, the expectations and assumptions that we never question, but which are the launching point for our reasoning and for our, our, our thinking hard about some of the questions that we have, all of those play a role. And unless we stop and ask ourselves, okay, how, how are these influencing me? We may never be aware that they are influencing us. And the problem with that is our emotions and, and certain values that we give way to are not necessarily indicative of the truth, right? They don't necessarily point us towards truth. Sometimes they might, but they don't always do that. And so we need to some, we need to step back, pause, and say, here's where I'm going with this. Here's the conclusion I'm coming to, but is this really based on a good evaluation of the evidence and the data, or is there something else that could be driving this and motivating me in coming to a conclusion that Christianity is false? Mm-hmm. So... We're getting awfully close to a break, so I don't want to get you started on another topic, uh, but I know that there are a lot of parents whose kids have, you know, made a profession of faith, and what strikes fear in their hearts is that their child is abandoning their faith. So I think I'm going to take a break, and when I come back, I want to discuss that topic, and John, I want you to, um, I also want to ask if there's, like, one issue that makes these kids pivot their thinking. Is it, is it one thing in the research you've done that says, all right, that's it. I'm done with this faith thing, and I want to I move away from my beliefs. So uh, Dr. John Marriott is my guest. His book is Before You Go, Uncovering Hidden Factors in Faith Lost. We'll take a very short break and be right back. John Marriott has written a book called Before You Go, Uncovering Hidden Factors in Faith Loss. 
And right before the break, John, I was asking you about, you know, the fear parents have that their children have made professions of faith and they have this fear that their child is maybe abandoning their faith. And there's a lot of people facing this reality. And the questions that come up all the time is, you know, what is the, what is the spiritual reality of my child right now? Yeah, I feel that myself. I have two children. Uh, my son, Cody, is 13. My daughter, Mariah, is 11. And as of right now, they're all in. You know, they go to youth group. They go to church. Mm-hmm. Uh, they identify as Christians. Uh, I also know that uh, a large percentage of young people eventually, uh, either uh, through attrition, they just sort of drift away, or by way of um, rejection, deny and say, I don't believe this anymore. And... Um, it's a big concern that I have as well, uh, which is part of the reason why I think about this and part of the reason why I, I, I write on it. And so I relate to those concerns a, a lot. And I wish that I could say that there was a silver bullet that you could identify that is the one thing that um, is most uh, deadly to faith. And I wish that there was one thing that I could identify that said, if you do this, then you know you have a 99% chance of uh, having a child that maintains their faith into their mature adult but um, it's just not that simple because there are so many different factors that go into it, whether it's personality or temperament of, of individual people. There's always, of course, a spiritual component there. And then um, there are cultural factors um, that play a role in, in all of this. And so it's really easy to identify the ingredients when they're sitting on the shelf. But as soon as you put them all into the bowl together and stir it up, it becomes a lot harder to say exactly why one person chooses to believe in one person realizes they no longer can. I appreciate that. I'm wondering how we're doing in terms of discipling young kids and are they understanding why they believe what they believe? Are they owning their faith or are they repeating what they're told they should believe? Yeah. One thing that I, I think that the latter is there's, really something uh, I think to, you know, to the latter there. And um, part of me wonders if um, often maybe what's going on is, especially when you have someone like a firstborn child who is someone who is almost always a dutiful child who is concerned about being right, uh, concerned about pleasing parents, and um, they adopt and they buy into what they've been told by their parents. And they adopt all of the values that their parents uh uh, share with them, and they adopt the beliefs that their parents share with them. But at, at some point, as they grow up, they may realize, but wait a minute, uh, this really isn't me. Uh, I don't really hold these values. And I think that people mature at different rates. People become emotionally secure at different rates. And so some people, it takes a long time for them to say, you know, I wasn't being deceptive when I was younger, when I said I believed all this kind of stuff, but now I just realized that's not who I am. Um, I just don't believe those things that I, I once did um, because they're not really who I am. And um, that's always a concern that I have, especially with my kids, because like I said, they would identify as Christians, but um, I, I don't know because uh, I can't see the state of their heart, um, whether or not this is, genuinely, sincerely motivated out of good reasons, but um, yet may at some point in, in the future not actually line up with who, with who they see themselves as being. Mm-hmm. John, what about when they experience confusion? Because 
a longtime well-respected believer, whether it's in the church or in some capacity of their life, walks away from their faith, and they're still young and impressionable. Well, I remember when that happened to me, I was stunned because a, a, a gentleman who came back from the mission field um, renounced his faith and said that he was no longer a Christian and actually left his family. And wow. I didn't have any, I didn't have any categories in my understanding for that whatsoever. I I was I, I really didn't know how to process it, and it would have been helpful for me if someone would have been able to kind of come alongside and and do that. And one of the things I try and do with my own kids is to address these questions and to to talk about them, um, and to you know ask them what they think about it. Uh, to try and also expose them to things, uh, maybe thinking in terms of like vaccines, like, you know, inoculating them mm-hmm. uh, by exposing them to some of the criticism, to some of the concerns. There are there are plenty of examples of the triggers that cause people to have a real intellectual crisis of faith. And by exposing young people to those before they hear about it from somebody on the Internet, I think can actually go a really long way because in, in, in staving off a faith crisis, because information that I'm running across now from listening to young people talk to me about why they're intellectually struggling with the Christian faith is stuff that nobody outside of a seminary education would ever have came across 20 years ago. Like, who are the authors of the Gospels? What is the situation with uh, the first couple chapters of Genesis? Uh, wh- how did the Old Testament get compiled together? Uh, there's a lot of skeptical views on that that sort of come from outside of the church that you would never get exposed to unless you went to seminary. And by getting exposed to it at seminary, I mean in a way so that you can understand it and be better grounded in, in knowing the text of Scripture as a document that has come by way of the Spirit of God through the hands of men. But now that information is easily and readily available in digestible form on the Internet, and there's just lots of young people who are stumbling across this and have no idea how to process it. But because it comes from outside of the church, it looks like it's coming from people who don't have a dog in the fight, who don't have an axe to grind, who are not trying to defend and gain converts to their view. These people just look like, uh, you know, unbiased uh, university professor types who are just interested in true history. And so because of that, there is uh, quite a formidable uh, effect that it has on young people who come across uh, a lot of information online that uh, in the past they never would have been exposed to. Very interesting. Dr. John Marriott is my guest. His book is Before You Go, Uncovering Hidden Factors in Faith Loss, Question came in, John. Is there a certain subject that causes more young people to walk away from their faith? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, by subject, let me briefly say two things. One would be intellectually, yes, there is one subject, and that would be the Bible itself. Mm. And that, and and when I say that, um, it could be something like they were told there were there. It's not possible that there could be any errors contradictions, mistakes in the Bible, and if there are, then it it can't be God's Word. Now, that's not what the doctrine of inerrancy actually teaches, but many people will say things like that, and they will even go further and say, and if there is an error in the Bible, then you shouldn't believe it anymore. And so 
then they get exposed to a plethora of uh, examples of things that are supposedly mistakes and errors, and they're not satisfied with the conclusions or the, the answers to those problems, and their faith starts to teeter, and one block gets pulled outside out of the Jenga tower of their faith. And then, you know, they come across pictures of God in the Old Testament, perhaps, that they don't really find that uh, are in line with their maybe modern uh, moral sensibilities, and they say, how could God ever command uh, Joshua to do this or command uh, you know, Samuel to do that? And um, they say, oh, boy, uh, that doesn't really seem like this could be a book from God with all this violence and, 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 um, and war in it. So then another block comes out of the Jenga Tower of Faith till eventually, um, you know, um, the problems with the Bible become so great that they say, I, I can't believe this anymore. So that would be the number one issue is, um, is Scripture. The, but the other issue when we say is there one subject is it's not so much a subject as much as it is that uh, young people are living in a world that is constantly shaping and forming and molding them into a view that if they don't uh, take the shape of the world that they're living in, then they start feeling like bigots. They start feeling like they are intolerant people. They start feeling as though that they are you know, personally immature and um, that they are uh, sort of maybe sometimes on the wrong side of history, the saying, so, the saying often goes, because as we become more secular and as morality becomes uh, sort of moves further and further away from a biblical, biblical worldview, um, it's much harder for young people to hold on to that and to say, no, I, I don't think that X is okay, and I don't think that this practice is okay, um, because they feel very much like a minority. And it's really hard to hold on to a view, especially a view that's a minority, and especially a view that's a minority that makes you out to be someone who is mean-spirited, uh, biased, um, bigoted, intolerant. Um, it, it's very hard to do that. So I think that there is a cultural piece that really pushes young people to try and find ways to maybe shape or remold their Christian faith in ways that is more acceptable to the culture, but maybe looks less biblical. And sometimes they, they just have to move right out of a biblical worldview to find any sort of sense of comfort among their peers. Oh, that's tragic. Very much so. Yeah. 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 I'm just pausing on that thinking. I probably should ask the next question, but we're just up against a break here. So I'm going to uh, probably not ask my next question, even though I've got lots, lots to, to ask you. Uh, Dr. John Marriott, is my guest. The book is written as a crisis of faith. Um, uh, it's called Before You Go, Uncovering Hidden Factors in Faith Loss. So maybe you know somebody that is going through this deconversion phase of their faith or they're drifting away. And John's nice enough to offer three copies of his book to give away. So if you want to get in on the drawing for one of these copies, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, just the word book. We'll take a short break and be back with John in just a minute.
just coming off a 90-second break, and be- between Rosie and I, we wrote 117 new questions for John. <laughs> By the way, hey, I love the bumper music. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. John, he, we're not kidding. We really actually came up with that many questions. <laughs> <laughs> Bill and I am, like, looking at the clock going, that, that time there's, didn't pass that fast. There's no way we can get this covered. Yeah, so much has come up. So just if you can, uh, give us a brief summary of the, remind us again, of the doctrine of inerrancy. Sure. The doctrine of inerrancy says that the Bible, in its original manuscripts, contains no errors on what it's intending to teach. So whether that's uh, something about historical or it's geographical claims, um, then it's telling us the truth. So inerrancy doesn't just mean that—so inerrancy means that in the original manuscripts, when Luke put his hand to paper— and by the time he was done, there, was no, there were no mistakes in that. Now, are there errors that have crept in in the translation process and in the copying process over the years? Yes, everyone agrees that that's the case. Even the most conservative scholars will say, well, yes, in the Bible that you have today, in the drawer in the hotel or on your shelf, there are some discrepancies because we're not exactly sure what the original text said. But in the original text, we don't believe that there were any errors because it was inspired by the Spirit of God. And so, therefore, we think that inspiration requires that it is without error. And so that would be the doctrine of inerrancy. Now, what I said earlier was that sometimes people will take that and go farther and not only say the Bible doesn't have errors in it, but it cannot have an error in it. And if it does, then you might as well just toss it out because if there's an error, it can't be the Word of God. And that actually is going farther, I think, than the claims the Bible makes for itself. Uh, And unfortunately, sometimes, and I've heard this from numerous young people who say, yeah, well, uh, you know, I was told that the Bible is completely without error, and if there is one error in it, then then I shouldn't believe it, because, you know, how do I know that there's not error all through it? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that necessarily follows. So, uh, unfortunately, that's going farther than what the doctrine of inerrancy historically has always held. Mm-hmm. Who just joined me, Dr. John Marriott is my guest. He's written a book called Before You Go, Uncovering Hidden Factors in Faith Loss. And he's nice enough to uh, give us three copies to give out. So if you want to get in on the drawing, of which there are many people already wanting in on the drawing, text the word book to 877-933-2484. John, another question came in regarding uh, false teachers. What if someone starts following a false teacher because God is not modern enough. Well, that is a genuine concern, um, and one that I'm addressing uh, now with another co-author in a, in a different book, and, and that one's sort of about deconstructing, and, mm-hmm. and sometimes deconstructing and deconverting are used synonymously, but they're not actually the same thing. Someone deconstructs their faith when they kind of take it apart piece by piece and look at it and then put it back together in a way that maybe they think fits better with their set of values or the way they understand the character of God. And and decon- deconverting is when people leave the faith, but sometimes deconstructing leads to deconverting. And there would be um, a, a lot of folks, especially young folks today, who say, I want to be a Christian, but I'm not sure that I can maintain a Christian faith in the way that I've always understood it mm. to be. 
And I think that there are other people out there who are teaching it in a way that maybe is more uh, attractive to me. And so therefore, I'm going to uh, follow them. And I, I think that it's hard to answer that question uh, specifically because certainly some people have been raised in a in a perspective of Christianity that may have a lot of serious issues uh, in it. Uh, there may be a lot of distortion about the character of God and about, uh, you know, maybe lots of legalism. And those should be perhaps deconstructed and those should be perhaps left behind. And then on the other hand, there are people who have come out of what I would think are very good representations of who God is and are very good, faithful churches that follow kind of a biblical worldview and a model faithfully, but who are out of step with culture. And it's very easy, I think, for young people to say, well, I want to be a Christian, but boy, there's a church down the street that doesn't require me to hold to uh, maybe a, a number of things that the his church has historically held to. And so I think I'd rather go there. And, and when that happens, I think then that's heading down uh, a concerning road. Mm-hmm. In your book, you talk about the heart wants what the heart wants. And a lot of former believers point to evidence and arguments as the reasons they left the faith. Such things must play an important role in these deconversions. Um, I'd love for you to say more about that. One thing that we're, we're not saying in the book is that um, that reason or that thinking or that using the intellect is not involved when mm-hmm. people leave the faith. I mean, everyone who leaves the faith always does it for one reason, and it's because they're convinced it's not true. But the question is, why are you convinced it's not true? And at that point, I think there's more going on than just I objectively evaluated the data or I objectively looked at the evidence. And so um, one of the things that the Bible would say is certainly part of this. And if Christianity is true and the Bible is a truthful representation of the world, which I think that it is, then um, what I would say would be there's a spiritual component to all of this. And the spiritual component is that, um, you know, we are people who by nature, by fallen nature, are desirous of being in charge of our own life and not wanting to submit to or do what we're told. And I think that the Bible makes that pretty clear, that, um, that that's a component of our relationship with God. And so whenever someone says, I'm leaving the faith, the first thing I, don't, I say is not, oh, it's because you want to sin more, because I don't think that that's, A, helpful or necessarily the truth. But I do think that that needs to be part of what's going on in the back of my mind to realize that this is not just simply uh, a debate whether or not the COVID vaccine is effective or not. It's not just on the scientific data that there's a spiritual component to why we believe or don't believe in God that's always involved in the equation. Mm-hmm. In one of your chapters, I want to say it's chapter 8, You in your book, you talk about a faithless belief, and you mention a woman named Libby Ann who's uh, a 20-something former evangelical Christian who grew up in the Midwest, so that got my attention right away. And all of her siblings were homeschooled and raised to be committed followers of Jesus. And today she's a mother and a very popular blogger, an atheist blogger. Talk about this faithless belief. Yeah, Libby Ann uh, shares her story online, and you can find it in, in the book. There's the footnote there to it. And uh, I think that she has a misunderstanding of what it means to believe and, and what it means to have faith. She says that, you know, she never really had 
uh, biblical faith, but she really believed. Hmm. And um, I think that um, you have both at the same time, or you don't have either at all. Uh, biblical faith is not simply just um, having an intellectual assent, but it is being willing to trust and to pledge uh, sort of, you know, another way of looking at it or thinking about it is kind of a pledging your loyalty or your allegiance to Jesus as the, the king. And in doing that, that means you trust him. And in and faith always goes uh, somewhat farther than the evidence can pinpoint. And um, that's the case when we get married. Uh, we have lots of reasons for why we believe intellectually the person we're marrying is going to be a good spouse and perhaps maybe a good parent um, to co-parent with us down the road. But the only way that you ever enter into that relationship is by making a, a commitment that goes farther than your intellectual uh, evidence points. You have to commit yourself to that person. And it seems as though Libyan believed that um, belief was equated with certainty. And when she had certainty, she was willing to follow Jesus. But as soon as there were questions, and as soon as she wasn't sure, and that certainty was gone, she said, oh, well, I guess I don't really believe anymore. And so I never really had any kind of biblical faith because I was not willing to go farther than what the evidence demonstrated. And we go farther than what the evidence demonstrates every day in our life. I think that it's only um, fair to do the same thing when it comes to a relationship with Jesus, because that's the only way that we're ever going to have one. Yeah, such a great point. Um so when people are struggling with their faith and they come across and say things to you like Libby Ann might have said if you had a conversation with her where she said, well, I, I'm an atheist, but I believe. I mean, you get sometimes these conflicting messages, and I and I, I wonder how you would handle yourself in a situation like that. Well, I think what I would I would try and do is, I, I you know, I would really want to respect the person that I'm I'm talking to, I don't think that in any of these conversations we move the ball downfield closer to helping someone, you know, refine a relationship with God by being confrontational or by being antagonistic. Uh, Vern Bankston, who used to be a professor at USC, did a long-term study. He studied over 3,000 individuals for 35 years, and it was on the transmission of faith. And he asked, what characteristics of families and individuals allow faith to to be transferred from one generation to another? And then what were the most sort of successful ways that people who had lost faith refound it again? And um, he says that the the primary way was that uh, people were willing, that that parents were willing to um, be patient, that they were willing to listen and that they were willing to respect and only engage really in dialogue where they came from different perspectives when the door was opened by the person who was struggling with with their their own questions. And so if I was talking with Libby Ann, I probably would try and listen well, respect her well, and then maybe just ask some probing questions that would help her maybe realize or come to the conclusion herself that she had some expectations and assumptions that... Um, were unjustified. But John, if Libby Ann was your daughter, there'd be a lot more emotion in it, right? There would be a lot more emotion than if she was my daughter. That's right. Mm-hmm. Because that seems to be the real challenge when 
parents are going through this moment of, I can't believe this is where our son or daughter is at right now, given the fact they were raised with their brothers and sisters, and they were all professing and confessing things and living lives, which appeared to be they were true believers. And how is it that they got to the point where they just walked away and said it was uh, they didn't believe anymore? Yeah. The how question is really challenging to answer, and people come from different perspectives. People become Christians for different reasons, right? Uh, And I do believe that people should become Christians because they think it's true. I believe that if someone's going to leave the faith, it should be because they believe it's no longer true. But what brings people to those conclusions really differs from person to person to person. And although it's really hard to pinpoint, there is always an intellectual component, but then there are these under the hood, under the, under, off the radar aspects of, you know, people have certain values that they esteem really highly, and maybe those don't line up with Christianity, or they've had some really significant emotional hurts in their life, and they project those onto God. And um, all of those play a role, and you can only really discover maybe what those are if you can ever discover what they are uh, completely, I don't think you can, but, but by listening really well and asking questions and, and really loving people, uh, I think is really a key in engaging with anyone um, because we're never going to see somebody come back to the faith because uh, we won an argument with them. Mm, such a good point. Dr. John Marriott is my guest. His book is Before You Go, Uncovering Hidden Factors in Faith Loss. We've got three copies to give out if you want to get one of them. Get in the drawing, text the word book, text it over to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back with John in a minute. Dr. John Marriott, his new book is called Before You Go, Uncovering Hidden Factors in Faith Loss. So maybe you know someone uh, who is struggling with the loss of faith, and this book will help explore many of the underlying reasons why people lose their faith. And John, I know this is uh, different from other apologetics books. What, uh, What can you tell us about what this book can help do? Yeah, this book is different because uh, most apologetics books are dealing with, and this is important and I think needs to be addressed, is the surface-level objections that get raised. I know I had lots of surface-level objections. And by surface-level, I don't mean that they're shallow and unimportant and that they're, um, that, that, that they're trivial. On the contrary, they, they, they can be uh, very significant. But by surface, I mean they're obvious and they're observable and you can see what the problem is. This book wants to say that um, sometimes there are more things going on than we realize. And um, in the same way that when you see an iceberg, the top of the iceberg is observable, you can see it, but it's really the smallest part of the iceberg. 
And the really dangerous part is the part that you can't see that's underneath the water. And um, we suspect uh, that uh, there's that when it comes to objections to the faith, the folks who say it's just my reason who's led me out uh, that's led me out of faith. Uh, and this is characteristic of um, many, many deconversion stories, and the titles of a lot of deconversion biographies um, interestingly use the word, you know, like my journey from religion to reason, um, mm. or from the cross to reason. And so, we're, we're, my co-author and I are saying, well, yes, certainly your thinking, your intellect plays a role, but... Um, that uh, may not be the driving factor. And um, if you were to go to a doctor because you suffered from or were really wrestling with anxiety, the doctor would probably prescribe you with some medication to treat the symptoms of the anxiety, the conscious worry that you're experiencing, the fixation, the obsessive thoughts. But if you really wanted to kind of address that, you might want to go see a therapist because the therapist is going to say, all right, um, we can treat the symptoms maybe with medication, but we should try and really talk this out and get to the root that's causing the symptoms, that's causing the problem. And our attempt in this book is to not do straightforward apologetics, but almost like a sort of an uh, apologetic therapy that, that says we don't doubt that you have some serious intellectual questions, and there are some really great resources for that. But Maybe instead of trying to answer those questions, we, we might be able to maybe um, just diffuse them by getting to the source. And if your objection to the existence of God is that there's too much evil in the world, mm, is it possible that that's coming out of some emotional experience that you, you, you might have had that has made you really angry at God? And, and, and that, the, that saying that God can't exist because there's too much evil in the world might just be a kind of a convenient way of convincing yourself that because it never really started out as intellectual. It started out as something else. Mm -hmm. John, there are a couple of stories that are coming into the the show and they they do represent things I've heard many times over. For example, here's one. Our son moved in with his girlfriend and now says he still believes that Jesus is a savior, but doesn't believe sex outside marriage or homosexuality is wrong. We've tried to talk about it and try to listen respectfully, but haven't always succeeded. Now he doesn't want to talk with us at all. He says his faith is none of our business. Any suggestions how to reestablish communication? Wow. Well, first, let me just say, um, my heart really goes really goes out to you, and I can only imagine how hard that would be and how heartbroken I would be if I experienced that. And so I I will pray for you uh, about that and ask that God will give you a sense of comfort in his in his goodness and in his kindness, um, because these are the kinds of things that really are just tear a parent's heart apart. And I, I do think that what I said earlier is that the best way to go about engaging with, with someone on these matters, because these are really deep personal matters, right? They go right to the heart of how we identify. Um, when it comes to issues of homosexuality, the reason why it is such a powerful and controversial topic today is because it goes right to the root of identity of who Mm -hmm. the person is. And to say that, you know, that practice is wrong is saying that that person is bad and it's hard for us to pull that apart. And, and when it comes to issues of faith, similar kind of a thing, right? It is an identity issue, who we are and how we identify. And to be told that, well, 
your follower of Jesus, but you're not really living according to him, I think can be helpful to be have that pointed out uh, and may necessarily, that might need to be pointed out. Um, but uh, at the same time, I think that um, being patient and being loving and being respectful um, in, in order to keep lines of communication open for those times when it's possible that um, that um, will allow someone to have a conversation maybe when the opportunity arises. Mm-hmm. Another um, remark came in, John. I, I, my, I, my son was active in the youth group and went on mission trips, and now he's affected by hypocrisy that is evident among some Christians. So we're going to be affected by that, what we see around us, and hypocrisy. I think we chatted about that a little bit already. Oh, and, and this is a growing, a really growing concern. Um, it seems like almost every day there is another um, well-known Christian leader who has uh, apparently been living some kind of a double life or living in prolonged sinful behavior, and we start to wonder, wow, I mean, uh, what's going on here? Uh, does Jesus really make a difference? And uh, and uh, if, he's a, if this is what following Jesus you know, produces, then why would I want to follow Jesus, especially if it's going to require me to restrain and restrain myself from uh, a lot of the things that I naturally want to do. And uh, so hypocrisy, I think, is a, is a huge problem, but not necessarily one that I think um, should cause someone to say, I, I don't believe in the existence of God anymore, um, because uh, lots of people don't live up to the, expect- the ideals that they profess. Um, and yet, that might be a moot point for someone who's been really hurt by hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. It certainly is an issue. Let's um, talk a little bit about what your what your book can help accomplish, because there's so many people that want a copy of it now. And I've only got three copies. And if I keep a copy and Rosie keeps a copy, I only got one copy to give away. <laughs> Uh, I, you know what? I wish I had. I wish I had more. I got just a few copies from the publisher myself. I get it. No, no, I appreciate it. But people but, are very it, interested. But you know, um, I do have a free book on my website that you can download, and um, it's called "Going, Going, Gone," mm-hmm. and it, it's very short. It's very readable. It's maybe 140 pages, and it's uh, like it's a small book. And uh, you could buy it on Amazon for 2.99, but you could also get it free off my website and download it as a PDF. So. If anybody would, would, would like a free resource, that's one place that you could get it. I so appreciate you mentioning that, John. Very generous. And that would be at johnmarriott.org? Yeah, and it's Marriott like the hotel, M-A-R-R-I-O-T-T dot O-R-G. So you come from a big hotel empire, so that's impressive. Oh, wait, that's not your family, is it? No, if it was, I would be I would be <laughs> writing books on how young people leave the Mormon face. <laughs> Oh, it's funny, but there's uh, just a lot of a lot of people are very interested in, and people are saying this is not only a great show, but it's um, a really important topic to discuss. I know this is affecting a lot of people, John, and I I think the message of your book is very timely. Um, so as people are thinking about who that person is, they want to have a conversation with. What is uh, we've only got a minute a minute left. What would you say is your first our first step we should take towards getting back in contact or getting in a better place with them? Great question. I think it's by putting them in the driver's seat and approaching them and saying, look, I realize that um, we've gone in, we're going in different directions. We have had a significant shift. And um, 
along with that comes a lot of emotion. And my impulse is going to try and do everything I can to drag you back. And, and that's going to be offensive and wrong. And so let me allow you to be in the driver's seat and set the, the, the rules of the game so that um, what is appropriate for me to ask and when is it appropriate for me to ask. Um, and, and I, and I want to do so because I want to respect uh, you as a person. And I know that that might not sound like it's going to be very effective because maybe they don't open up the door, but I think it will be more effective than, uh, you know, maybe bombarding them with, you know, Bible tracts and always wanting to have a debate and always wanting to have a discussion. Uh, that, that, that for sure will um, be doomed to fail. Yeah, that approach is a lot of humility. So I appreciate that approach. Yeah. Yeah. Been a delight, John. Once again, having you on the show. Thank you so much for oh, spending the hour with me and then writing this book. Thank you. I, you know, I really appreciate it, and um, I, I kind of just feel like this is a bit of my uh, of a ministry that God's placed in my lap. And if there's anything I can do, or if I can help anybody who's out there, uh, you, you can always get in touch with me through my website. And um, I don't, know, I don't certainly don't have the answers to everything, but it's uh, definitely something I've given a lot of thought and a lot of research to. So. Um, if there's anything I can do for anybody, uh, please feel free to reach out. Thank you so much. Dr. John Marriott has been my guest. His book is Before You Go, Uncovering Hidden Factors in Faith Lost. That's all the show we have for today, and I sure love being with you. I hope you had a great day, and I hope you have a great evening. I'm already looking forward to tomorrow, uh, so have a great night as you lay your head on the pillow. Know that God is l- working out his great Thanks plan Thanks for listening. He Programming like this too. is Get made tomorrow. available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.